Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Telegraph Herald for Wednesday, February 22nd. And this is IRIS, the Iowa Radio Information Services Network for the Blind and the Disabled. And I am your reader, Peter Welch. All right, let's see what's going on here in the paper today. Uh, Dubuque budget plan would raise utility fees. City manager says rate increases are needed to cover pay raises and capital improvements. Dubuque's city manager proposes increasing the price of all city utilities in the coming fiscal year. The proposed utility rate increases for the fiscal year that starts July 1st would result in a 7.87 increase in the average monthly bill of Dubuque residents using city utilities. The increases are included in City Manager Mike Van Milligan's proposed fiscal year 2024 budget for the city. He told the Telegraph Herald that the utility rate increases are necessary for a city's effort to raise employees' wages along with capital improvement uh, projects planned for next fiscal year. We're doing our best to retain and recruit employees to operate our systems, Van Milligan said, and we also need to make capital investments in those systems. City council members must approve a budget for next fiscal year by the end of April. City departments will present their budget proposals to council members over the next month. For fiscal year 2024, Van Milligan also proposes raising the city's monthly water rate by 8%, the monthly sanitary sewer rate by 8%, the monthly curbside collection rate by 2.9%, and monthly stormwater rate by 11.1%. City council members said Tuesday that they still wanted to hear more information on how the money from the proposed utility increases would be used, but that they have confidence in the city manager's recommendation. I think this looks like the cost of doing business, said council member Susan Farber. The cost of business is going up for everybody, and that goes for the city, too. Okay, let's take another look here. Supervisors mull proposal to change 911 center funding. Van Milligan argues that the city residents are taxed twice to fund the facility. Dubuque City Manage, Manager Mike Van Milligan on Tuesday once again asked to reshape a partnership with Dubuque County that funds the entity's shared 911 dispatch center claiming city residents are taxed twice. An agreement between the two local governments has been unchanged for more than 20 years. According to County Emergency Manager Director Tom Berger, in the agreement, the city of Dubuque pays for 67% of the 911 center annually and Dubuque County pays 33%. But because city of Dubuque property owners pay both city and county taxes, they pay for the 911 center through both levels. It's not fair to the people living in the city, said County Supervisor Harley Pothoff, who supported Van Milligan's reasoning and request for the agreement to be changed. Van Milligan said... At a Board of Supervisors meeting Tuesday, that while the agreement includes a 67%, 33% split, the dual taxation of city residents means that their tax dollars currently fund 86% of the 911 center. According to his figures, that came to 
$322,970 in fiscal year 2019, the year he used for his analysis. In the same year, county tax dollars from outside the city totaled $222,653 for 911. What we're hoping happens is that operation of the emergency 911 system would move over to the county, he said, proposing it then be overseen by the Dubuque County 911 Public Safety Committee, made up of about 20 emergency service agencies, including both the Dubuque County Sheriff's and Dubuque Police Departments. Van Milligan has sent requests for the 911 funding change regularly in recent years without as full a discussion as was had on Tuesday. Brothers Toast Fundraiser's Last Dance, annual effort in honor of sister who died of cancer, has raised $45,000 for Iowa City Children's Hospital in the past nine years. In Asbury, Iowa, next week, Asbury brothers Noah and John Wheats and about 15 of their friends will gather at Loris College in Dubuque for a night of sports and other activities. Then we'll come back here to our house for a big sleepover and video games, and we'll all go out and eat breakfast together the next morning, said John, age 17. Though it will be as full of food and fun as any party, the gathering serves a greater proposal than a simple celebration among friends. It's the culmination of an annual fundraising effort called Game Changers, launched by the Whites Brothers to raise money for Loris Duthon, formerly Dance Marathon. Game Changers honor Noah and John's sister, Anna, who died at age five after a battle with cancer. Over the past nine years, Game Changers has raised $45,000 for Loris Duthon, which donates the money to University of Iowa Steed Family Children's Hospital in Iowa City, and where Anna received treatment. Uh, this will be John and Noah's final year hosting Game Changers, and they hope to bring their grand total to $50,000 by the time of their annual event on March 3rd. It's an important cause to me. It's nice being able to have fun and raise money for a really good cause, said Noah, age 21, and a senior at Loris. Full of life and energy, according to her mother, Krista White's Anna was spunky and a sassy girl who loved camping and riding her bike and dancing and playing with her brothers. She always had a smile on her face, and she could make everyone laugh in the room. We called John, a senior at Hempstead High School, and it was three years old in 2010 when she began experiencing back pain and was diagnosed with a form of cancer that originates in the soft tissues. She was given a 30% chance of survival, but Krista and said that the family chose not to focus on that prognosis. To get through it, if you have to, you have to hope. Anna completed more than a year of radiation and chemotherapy treatments. During that time, the White's family was involved in a miracle family with Loris College's Dance Marathon, which Chris's sister, Kim Walsh, helped find, or found, rather, excuse me, in 2005. Krista said that the Dance Marathon students sent Anna cards and funny videos to make her smile. The money they raised helped pay for playrooms and music therapies, vending machines, 
and other amenities at the Iowa City Hospital. Okay, let's see what else is going on here. Health Board seeks funding for substance use treatment program. Officials hope to renew a contract with Mercy One Dubuque Medical Center to provide medication-assisted treatment to local residents. The Dubuque County Board of Health is considering a return to a successful substance use disorder treatment program, which advocates say advocates say that has greatly benefited the community. Since 2021, the county health department has contracted contracted with Mercy One Dubuque Medical Center to provide a medication-assisted treatment, also known as MAT, M-A-T, clinic for those experiencing substance use disorder. There, providers assess and, if appropriate, provide medications to stabilize patients with withdrawal symptoms and ongoing craving maintenance. For each of the last two fiscal years, the Board of Health has budgeted $60,000 for the service. According to the advocates, during a recent County Board of Health meeting, the medication services provided through the program are a key component to substance use treatment in the area. It was, I was just I just want to thank everyone who has supported this MAT program, said Vicki Allendorf, founder of I Hate Heroin, a group of loved ones of people who had died or been harmed by addiction. The MAT component in our community is critical. In the time of the contract, Mercy One served patients during 390 visits, averaging around 30 per month, according to company documents provided to the Board of Health. Expanding substance use services is a high priority of Board of Health members as the COVID-19 pandemic takes up less of their focus due to lower case numbers, deaths, and hospitalizations recently. They're reforming a subcommittee devoted to the topic. But as noted by Board of Chair Sandra Larson, the county's contract with Mercy One annually is ending July 30th as of last year, the county did not budget for another year of the service in the fiscal year. We have no money for it, she said, and if we wanted to be involved, we would need to find the money. Mercy One did not respond to repeated requests for comment on Monday and Tuesday. All right, what else is going on here? Amazon Facilities celebrates Black History Marks, 2 million packages delivered. An event, Dubuque official Anderson Saincy discusses the importance of company values and goal setting. This week provided cause for multiple celebrations for employees at Dubuque's Amazon delivery facility. The Amazon warehouse, which opened January 12th of 2022 at 7200 Chavonville Road, took time Tuesday to celebrate Black History Month by recognizing its employees and also to mark 2 million packages delivered since its opening. I was happy to see this, Taraz Holman, an Amazon operations manager, said of the Black History Month reception and celebration. I think this was a good way to bring everyone together. It's not about one culture. It's about unity. Anderson Saincy spoke with a group of Amazon employees as part of the event, St. C is the director of the city of Dubuque's Office of Shared Prosperity and Neighborhood Support. 
and also the first black man elected to the Dubuque Community School Board. Black history is not just one month, Saintsy said. For a lot of us, it's 365 days a year. It's a lot of work to not only make everyone feel included every single day, but also be their authentic self every single day. Saintsy told employees to focus on setting goals for their future, and he also told the facility's leaders to make sure that their employees knew the company's values and how each employee contributes to those values. Let's not just talk about black history without actions, he said. If you're winning right now in the organization or community and the people around you are not winning, then you're not winning. It's one thing to talk, but people need to see what they can be. Christina Long and Lynetta Tucker, who have been Amazon Associates in Dubuque since June, both said that the facility stresses teamwork, giving everyone a chance to be included in the workplace. Our leadership is pretty hands-on and involved much in every aspect of the job, Long said. The job is not done without the whole team, Tucker added. It's not just about one person. Dubuque's Amazon facility also is the process of launching a BEN, that's B-E-N, or Black Employee Network Affinity Group, which should be fully up and running by April, according to Hannah Yeager, uh, lead on road execution at the facility. It will focus on advocacy so that black employees' voice is heard, she said. It will also provide resources on how to build a resume and leadership skills. The facility donated $2,000 this month, $2,000, I should say, this month, to Dubuque Black Men Coalition to support the group's efforts in the community. The Dubuque Amazon facility also marked delivering 2 million packages in its 60-mile radius since opening. The facility officially hit the milestone on February 10th. Okay, now it's time to go to the Dubuque and Tri-State News Briefs uh, section of the paper. Police arm man breaks facial bone of Platteville officer in Platteville, Wisconsin. Police said that a man with a knife struck and injured a Platteville officer, police officer, on Monday. Platteville police responded at 358 on Monday to the area of Madison and Jefferson Streets for a report of a man on the street with a knife who was threatening people and damaging property, according to an online announcement. Officers located the man, Huel C. Bauman, Jr., age 23, of Platteville, standing in the yard of a residence. The announcement states that as officers were speaking with Bowman, he suddenly lunged at an officer and struck an officer in the face. Lieutenant Josh Grainbent said that Bowman struck the officer, Sergeant Paul Rellinger, with his fist. Rellinger suffered a split lip and a broken facial bone and sought medical treatment for his injuries. The announcement stated that Rellinger is currently off-duty as a result of his injuries. Bowman fled the scene on foot, and officers were able to apprehend him after a struggle. Officers deployed a stun gun and pepper spray. Officers recovered a knife near Bowman when he was arrested. Authorities transported Bowman to Southwest Health in Platteville for medical clearance. Bowman allegedly spat or spit, I should say, at emergency personnel at the hospital. 
He was eventually transported to Grant County Jail. The Post states that multiple charges will be forwarded to the Grand, uh, I should say to the Grant, excuse me, Grant County District's Attorney's Office for review. It is still an active investigation, Graham Bent went on to say. Ice storm warning for Dubuque and County 5, other local counties, an ice storm warning. will cover a significant portion of the tri-state area, including Dubuque County starting today. The National Weather Service issued the warning for 9 a.m. To, uh, today uh, to 6 p.m. Thursday, February 23rd, for a large area that includes Clayton, Delaware, Dubuque counties, and Iowa, Grant and Lafayette counties in Wisconsin, and Joe Davis County, Illinois. The NWS warns that significant icing is expected as snow and sleet hit the area along with wind gusts of up to 45 miles per hour. Power outages and tree damage are likely due to to the ice and strong winds, states the NWS. Travel could be nearly impossible. The hazardous conditions will impact the commutes Wednesday evening and Thursday morning. Travel is strongly discouraged. If you must travel, Keep an extra flashlight, food, and water in your vehicle in case of an emergency. Prepare for possible power outages. The ice storm warning does not extend south to include Jackson and Jones County in Iowa, which are under a winter weather advisory. Crawford and Iowa counties in Wisconsin will be under a winter storm warning. World War II era ships set for Dubuque return in September. World War II-era landing ship will return to Dubuque later this year. The USS LST-325 will visit Dubuque in early September. Travel Dubuque announced on Tuesday. A press release states that public tours of the ship will be available. The LST-325 stands for U.S. Navy Landing Ship Tank. It was designed to quickly offload troops or vehicles without needing to make port at a dock or pier. This particular ship ship served as a hospital ship, returning wounded military personnel back to England from the beaches of Normandy. Its first visit to Dubuque in August 2018 drew more than 16,600 visitors, with a 75% of those visiting coming from more than 50 miles outside Dubuque, according to the tourism officials. Additional details about the Dubuque Dubuque visit will be announced later on. And then we have one police report, the Dubuque Police and Dubuque County Sheriff's Department's uh, reporting that Adrian D. Johnson, age 33, a resident of the Hillcrest Family Services Residential Facility at 1160 Sepal Road, was arrested at 3.51 a.m. Tuesday at the facility on a charge of assault. All right, now it's time to look at the opinion page of the Telegraph Herald for this Wednesday, the 22nd of February. And uh, this is a letter to the editor, and this is by Olivia Hill, and it's titled, Schools Should Start Later in the Morning. Schools in Dubuque should have a 9 a.m. start time because it benefits teams in their academic performance and their overall health. Waking up at 6 a.m. or even earlier is hard on teenagers, 
and on growing bodies, extracurriculars, studying part-time jobs, and stress all contribute to keeping teenagers up late at night, preventing them from getting their recommended 8 to 11 hours of sleep. However, the main factor that contributes to a lack of sleep may be biological. Changes during puberty cause teens to stay up later, especially changes with their circadian rhythm. A recent opinion piece from Scientific American magazine emphasizes that the circadian rhythm is the natural 24-hour cycle that affects behavior and the ability to fall asleep at night. The article agrees with the fact that the inadequate sleep leads to countless negative health consequences that impact students' ability to learn. Public schools in Washington and California put this late start time to the test and received significant results. Honoring teenagers' biological needs will benefit their schoolwork and academic readiness and eventually create adults who can thrive through their futures. If everyone is always pushing for the best thing for students and teenagers, why is action not being taken to set them up for a better future? It starts with a later start time in Dubuque schools and eventually schools throughout the country. And again, that was written by uh, Olivia Hill. This next is also written by Olivia, but Olivia Stetcher, same for first name, but different name, last name. Iowa should sanction dance team as a sport. The Iowa High School Athletic Association should consider sanctioning dance as a sport in Iowa. Many believe that dance is just an art. However, dance requires athleticism, coordination, endurance, and multiple hours of training. Dance is highly competitive and very entertaining, like many sports. While participants in sports like swimming and diving are slowly decreasing, dance has increasingly become more popular over the years, especially in the state of Iowa. Not only are studio teams multiplying, but so are high school dance teams. Because of this popularity, almost all states surrounding Iowa have been sanctioning dance, with Minnesota sanctioning it as early as 1996. The 47th Iowa State Dance Championship in 2022 had the highest amount of participants, routines, and schools competing ever, with a total of 255 high school dance teams. And this number will continue to leap forward. Not only is dance an an expanding sport, but the Iowa Dance State Championship is the largest state dance championship in the nation. Therefore, I urge the state of Iowa to sanction dance as a sport with the thousands of participants and hundreds of dance teams across the state. And again, that was written by uh, Olivia Stetcher. And this last one, abolish death penalty to spare the mentally ill. And this is written by Nicholas Moroni. People with mental disabilities should not receive the death penalty. The only way to accomplish this is to abolish the death penalty in the United States as a whole. A leading mental health group, Mental Health America, estimates that 5 to 10% of all death row inmates suffer from severe mental illness. Cecil Clayton was executed on March 17, 2015 in Missouri. He lost a significant part of his brain due to a sawmill accident 
1972, requiring the removal of about 20% of his frontal lobe. He lived a normal life compared to the average human, but unfortunately experienced a few dramatic events which led him to his mental health condition. He even checked himself into a mental hospital before the incident, which proves he was somewhat sensible and a caring man. His attorneys insisted that he should be spared because he couldn't even comprehend his sentence. The punishment was still carried out. While researching this topic, I find that there have been many instances where the death penalty has been given to people with mental disabilities. This is inhumane and unjust. And the only way to ensure that innocent people don't die is to abolish the death penalty for good. And again, that was written by Nicholas Maroney. All right, let's continue on here to the, stri uh, to the tri-state area of a uh, page and columns of the, um, uh, the, the Telegraph Herald. This first article is Lancaster seeks $1 million in federal funds for fire station. If secured, the funding would cover half of the $2.25 million facility improvement project. In Lancaster, Wisconsin, Lancaster officials hope to receive more than $1 million in federal funding in the upcoming budget cycle to put towards improvements at the city fire station. City council members this week voted to apply for the funds, which would cover half of the approximately $2.25 million project. Plan station improvements include completion of the second floor, a new roof, and several safety upgrades. This is exactly the kind of project that this federal program likes to fund, Fire Chief Steve Brown said and told council members, if you're going to move forward with this project, now is the time. The $1 million would come from congressionally directed spending in the upcoming budget process. Similar funding has been allocated previously to fire station projects in Platteville and Prairies de Chia. The city was informed of its eligibility earlier this month by U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin's office, and applications are due by Tuesday, the 28th of February. That left city officials with a short turnaround time to consider if they wanted to move forward with the project. City Administrator David Carlson said that he was supportive of the project but warned council members that applying for the grant did come with some financial responsibilities. If the federal funding is received, the city would have to submit a $1.1 million match. The Lancaster Fire EMS Group has pledged $300,000. The surrounding townships are expected to cover about 40% of the remaining cost, leaving the city with about $495,000 to cover. Carlson reminded council members that those figures represented a best-case scenario and that it would be best to plan to cover the full $1.1 million just in case, as it's not guaranteed that the other parties will contribute expected totals in full. If we get the funding, we don't have to take the money, Carlson said, but you'd be saying, all right, Senator, you worked hard in Congress to pass this, but you know what? We can't come up with that match and then don't even plan on asking for direct legislative again. 
Despite the warning, council members seemed optimistic and excited about the federal funding opportunity. The motion to apply for the funds passed 6-0. Council President Shane Labuda was absent, and Council Member Sarah Burks experienced technical issues that prevented her from voting over Zoom. Here's some uh, news briefs uh, right now here in the paper. Scholarships available for River Museum camps in Dubuque. A Dubuque Museum is offering a limited number of scholarships for students who attend educational programming. A fundraising campaign during the 2022 Captain's Ball resulted in more than $30,000 available for scholarships at National Mississippi River Museum and Aquarium, according to a press release. The money will support students and families in need to attend day camps in the coming year. The release states that the scholarships are available to students who um, receive free or reduced-price lunches and applies to the museum's summer and winter break camps, grades kindergarten through five, and early explorers program ages two to five in middle school. Next-level camps, grades six to eight. Scholarships cover the cost of the camp in addition to lunch and wrap-around care where applicable. Parents can register their children online at rivermuseum.com forward slash learn, comma, clicking on the Camps and Programs tab. And a Dubuque resident badly damaged by fire, no injuries. A fire badly damaged a Dubuque residence on Tuesday, though no injuries were reported. Firefighters were dispatched at 3.32 p.m., to 3241 Sheridan Road in northern Dubuque after a blaze broke out in a second-floor bedroom of the two-story single-family home. Dubuque Assistant Fire Chief Greg Harris said that the first fire crew arrived on the scene at 3.35 p.m. The fire was contained by 3.40 p.m. A total of 15 fire department personnel from three crews responded. Harris said that the homeowners listed and online property records as Henry and Laura Gergas were present when the fire broke out, along with another adult and a child. He said smoke alarms alerted all four to the exit. Neither homeowner was available for comment. Family members arrived on scene shortly after the blaze was extinguished. A complete damage estimate was not immediately available. And then I'd like to remind you that you are listening to the reading of the Telegraph Herald for Wednesday, the 22nd of February. And yes, we do have some uh, readings in the obituary section of the paper. The first one is Thelma J. Roberts, uh, who completed her earthly journey on Friday, has passed at the, uh, on February 17th. The family will Greet friends on on Friday, February 24th at the Cathedral of St. Raphael in Dubuque from 9 to 10.30 where a mass of Christian burial will be held at 10.30 with Friar Tennis Quint officiating. Burial will be in Linwood Cemetery, Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory. Dubuque, Iowa is assisting the family. Carol Gullick, age 84, passed away on Thursday, the 16th of February. Visitation will be from 9.15 to 10.15 uh, a.m. on Saturday, February the 25th at Raphael Cathedral, followed by Mass of Christian Burial. 
at 10.30 a.m. The inurnment will be in Mount Calvary Cemetery. A live stream of the funeral mass may be, may be viewed at www. and I'll spell this E G E L H O F S I E S I E G E R T Casper.com. And let's see what else is uh, happening here. Bernard Schroeder has passed away on Monday, the 20th of February at Luther Matter in Dubuque, Iowa. The memorial service will be at the Unitarian Universalist Fellowship in Dubuque, at 1699 Iowa Street in Dubuque, and of course in Iowa on Saturday, February 25th at 11 a.m. And online condolences and memories can be shared with the family at www.iowacremation.com. Com. And also, uh, in East Dubuque, Carla D. Kipper, age 58, passed away at the Finley Hospital in Dubuque, surrounded by her family. Master Christian Burial will be at 10.30 a.m. on Saturday, the 25th of February, at Mary's Church in East Dubuque, with Friar uh, Dennis uh, Vargas officiating. Burial will follow in the East Dubuque Cemetery. Visitation for family and friends will be from 4 to 7 p.m. on Friday at the Miller Funeral Home on East Dubuque, where the parish rosary will be recited at 3.30 p.m. Friends may also visit from 9.30 to 10.15 a.m. on Saturday at the church. Here's an article I'll tell you, it certainly is uh, applicable for me, uh, namely having shoulder pain. And this is by uh, Michael Roizen, who contributes regularly to the paper. Are you shouldering the burden of shoulder pain? Well, in my case, yes, I sure am. When Kobe Bryant scheduled a rotor cuff surgery in 2015, he said, the funny thing about it is I've been playing with it. I guess torn for a long time. I can shoot, but I just keep tearing it more and more and more. Not the best approach for most folks with shoulder problems. The rotary cuff is made up of four tendons around the ball joint of the upper arm. It's a complex structure, allowing commotion in many directions, but it's easy to damage. Shoulder pain often happens when rotary cuff tendons become inflamed or damaged, causing tendonitis or bucitis. Shoulder pain also is caused by arthritis, bone spurs, frozen shoulder, overuse or injury of nearby tendons or muscles, poor posture or lousy ergonomics at computer, desk, and nerve injury from trauma or misuse. I had rotor cuff uh, surgery in December of 2022 because I tore three tendons and partially tore a fourth during a chest press with my usual weights, but without my usual lighter weight warm-up. I'm recovering well, but the message is don't skip the warm-up. If you have mild shoulder pain, you can ease the discomfort, and you can click out HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash health dot Cleveland Clinic dot org dot and then search for shoulder other tips ice the shoulder for 15 minutes 
on 15 minutes off and 15 minutes on several times a day. Practice good posture and do range of motions, exercises, get instruction from a physical therapist. Take NSAIDS to ease inflammation for pain relief. But if the pain worsens or it doesn't fade in a couple of weeks, then you should go see your doctor. All right. Well, here's my favorite part of the program, lifestyle. And it's about food. Oh, goodness gracious. I am looking at a picture right now of a bowl of uh, pasta. It's pesto. This pesto includes more than the classic Genovese combination of basil and Parmesan. Oh, boy, I'm already foaming at the mouth here. Let's take a look at this delicious meal. Five-ingredient Sicilian pesto saves time on weeknight. Okay, let's take a look at this. Weeknight pasta might sound like it takes too much time, but a Sicilian no-cook pesto will be ready in the time it takes to boil the water and cook the pasta. This recipe from our book, Tuesday Night Mediterranean, which features weeknight-friendly meals from the region, calls for just five ingredients to create a sauce that requires only a blender and minimum knife work. Though the most common pesto is the classic Genovese combination of basil and Parmesan, we loved a version we found in Sicily that also includes two of the island's premier products, pistachios and ricotta. We blend them all with chives for additional freshness while the pasta cooks until al dente, and incorporating a bit of the starchy pasta water helps thin the sauce and make it cling to the noodles. There's no need to grate the Parmesan, the nuttiness of which complements the pistachios. Simply cut it into chunks and toss the pieces into the blender. The pesto is good on a wide variety of pasta shapes, but the hollow centers and surface ridges of rigatoni do a particularly good job of gripping the rich, creamy sauce. We're usually fans of toasted nuts, but this is the case where raw pistachios are best. Their bright color and natural sweetness are key for a vibrant, full-flavored pesto. Okay, now... Let me give you the recipe. This is rigatoni with pistachios, ricotta, and herb pesto. And start to finish to prepare this meal, 25 minutes. And it will serve four to six people. Here you go. One pound of rigatoni or other short tubular pasta. Kosher salt and ground black pepper. One and one-third cups of whole milk ricotta cheese. Three quarters of a cup of raw pistachios, plus two tablespoons of finely chopped pistachios. Two tablespoons of extra virgin olive oil, plus more to serve. Two ounces of Parmesan cheese without rind, cut into four or five pieces. A half a cup of lightly packed fresh basil. And then a quarter cup roughly chopped fresh chives. All right, now here's how you make it. In a large pot, bring four quarts of water to boil, stir in the pasta and one tablespoon of salt. Then cook, stirring occasionally until al dente. Reserve one and a half cups of the cooking water. Then drain the pasta and return it to the pot. In a blender, combine the ricotta, 
the whole pistachios, the olive oil, Parmesan, basil, chives, a half a teaspoon of salt and half a or a quarter of a teaspoon of uh, pepper. Add one cup of the reserved pasta water and blend until creamy, about a minute. The pesto should have a consistency similar to yogurt. Pour the pesto over the pasta and stir, adding more reserved pasta water as needed so that the sauce coats the noodles. Taste and season with more salt and pepper. Serve drizzled with additional oil and sprinkle with the chopped pistachios. I know, it's making me hungry too, believe me, because I must admit I sure do love pasta. Now, here's something else that I think most of us can say that we love, and that's flaky fillets. You know, how you roll them in bread and, you know, and you fry them. Okay, you know, to, to a nice brown. Oh, boy. Well, this article is called Flaky Filet Fix, our annual roundup of area Lenten fish fries. Now, let me read this a little bit to you, give you an idea what's going on. The 2023 Lenten season begins today and continues through Thursday, the 6th of April. With that arrives the season of battered, deep fried to golden perfection and dipped in tartar sauce goodness, known as the annual fish fry. Locally Lenten fish fries have evolved into a culinary staple served up with a baked potato, creamy coleslaw, green beans, a buttery dinner roll, and a sweet treat. We've rounded up where you can get your filet fix this year, from local churches and schools and clubs and community centers, accompanied by a handy interactive fish fry map. You can access at telegraphherald.com. Uh, I should excuse me. I should say telegraphherald.com forward slash fish. See any we missed? Well, contact features editor Megan Gloss, and here's the number for that: five six three five eight eight five six three eight, or Megan dot Gloss G L O S S at t h m e d i a dot com to be added to our list and map throughout the Lenten season. So, yum, yum. And oh, yes, they've got other things here. Uh, um, we don't have much time to, to, to talk about them, but um, um, some of the things that you can also do are with pork, which is considered the other white meat. Um, and when you go shopping, um, you can do, and oh, there's so many different ways to prepare it. Um, you can uh, buy three quarters of a pound of pork tenderloin and a, uh, a bottle of ground cinnamon and a, uh, a container of butternut squash and cubes and a container of green beans. And um, that's one thing you can do. You can do sweet and spicy pork, which is uh, also delicious. And you need, um, you know, the ground pork loin itself, a pound of that, ground cinnamon, and um, also uh, salt and pepper and olive oil. Like I said, there are a lot of different ways you can go. Roasted butternut squash and green peppers. Oh boy. Uh, olive oil spray, four cups of butternut squash, about a pound, half a pound of green beans, salt and freshly ground black pepper, tablespoon of olive oil. There's, like I said, there's so many different ways you can prepare these, me these meals. Okay, let's move on here. Okay, we're going to go now to the um, to the nation and the world section of the paper, EPA to railroad cleanup toxic derailment. 
federal regulators take over long-term recovery efforts in Ohio as Norfolk Southern CEO promises to become a safer railroad. In East Palestine, Ohio, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency ordered Norfolk Southern on Tuesday to pay for the cleanup of the East Palestine, Ohio train wreck and chemical release as federal regulators took charge of long-term recovery efforts and promised worried residents that they would not be forgotten. Speaking to reporters near the derailment site, Norfolk Southern CEO promised to undertake necessary steps to ensure the long-term health of the community and become a safer railroad. EPA used its authority under the federal Superfund law to order Norfolk Southern to take all available measures to clean up contaminated air and water. It also said that the company would be required to reimburse the federal government for a new program to provide cleaning services for impacted residents and businesses. Norfolk Southern will pay for cleaning up the mess that they created and the trauma that they inflicted on this community. EPA Administrator Michael Reagan vowed at a news conference in East Palestine, I know this order cannot undo the nightmare that families in this town have been living with, but it will begin to deliver much-needed justice for the pain that Norfolk Southern has caused. He warned that if Norfolk Southern fails to comply, the agency will perform the work itself and seek triple damages from the company. EPA planned to release more details on the cleanup service for residents and businesses, which it said would provide an additional layer of reassurance. The agency said that it ordered, uh, it's, it said it order marked the end of the emergency phase of the February 3rd derailment and the start of long-term remediation. Norfolk Southern CEO Alan Shaw reiterated promises to restore the site and invest in the community. From day one, I've made the commitment that Norfolk Southern is going to remediate the site. We're going to do continuous long-term air and water monitoring. We're going to help the residents of this community recover. And we're going to invest in the long-term health of this community. And we're going to make Norfolk Southern a safer railroad, he told reporters. Jeff Zalek, who lives with his 100-year-old mother, just blocks from the derailment site, said that he's waiting for the home to be cleaned before moving back. He said that there's still a chemical smell inside, though not nearly as bad as a week ago. The walls need scrubbing, and he wants air purifiers installed before allowing his mother back. I just want to make sure she's safe, he said. She's ready to come home. She cries every day. In a tweet sent after the EPA announcement, President Joe Biden said that the Trump administration and other elected officials hampered efforts to improve rail safety. We'll continue to hold real companies accountable when they fail to put safety first. But first, we've got Norfolk Southern's mess to clean up, he said. I want affected residents to know that we've got your back. EPA's move to compel Norfolk Southern to clean up came nearly three weeks after more than three dozen freight cars, including 11 carrying hazardous materials, derailed on the East Palestine outskirts near the Pennsylvania state line, prompting an evacuation as fears grew 
about a potential explosion of smoldering records. Officials seeking to avoid an uncontrolled blast intentionally released and burned toxic vinyl chloride from five rail cars, sending flashes and black smoke high into the air. That left people questioning the potential health impacts, even as authorities maintained that they were doing their best to pr protect people. Ohio, Ohio Governor Mike DeWine assured the residents that they will not be left to handle the aftermath on their own once public attention turns elsewhere. We understand that it's not just about today. It's not just about two weeks from now. He said people have long-term concerns. And we're going to do everything we can to stay at this. Okay, let's go to Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras brings joy but worry over violent crime. In New Orleans, sunny skies and unusually warm weather fueled the street party from fervor in, North, in New Orleans as the city celebrated Mardi Gras. Fat Tuesday, the annual ebullient climax of carnival season marked by shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder crowds on raucous Bourbon Street and thousands lining St. Charles Avenue for family-friendly parades. Celebrations began before dawn in some parts of the city. TV crews captured images of the Northside Skull and Bones gang, skeleton uh, costumed revelers spreading out through the through the trim area to awakening people for Mardi Gras. As the sun rose, parade watchers were already claiming, uh, clamming pots along the parade route and barbecue smells wafted, uh, wafted through the central business district. Revelers were undeterred by violence that or marred a glitzy weekend parade. Gunfire that broke out during a parade Sunday night left a teenager dead and four others injured, including a four-year-old girl. Police quickly arrested Mansour Majobi, age 21, for illegally carrying a weapon, then upgraded the charge to second-degree murder. Officials stressed Monday that the shooting was an isolated event. It is discouraging, but it's not going to stop me from coming, said Roz Walker, age 55. She and her friend Tracy Dunbar are Baton Rouge residents were among the crowd awaiting the, the parades of the Zulu Social Aid and Pleasure Club and the Rex organization. They've been visiting New Orleans on the Mardi Gras for decades. Hong Kong pulls visa for man behind gene-edited baby's claim. In Beijing, Hong Kong on Tuesday revoked a visa that granted to a Chinese scientist who set off an ethical debate five years ago with claims that he made the world's first genetically edited baby, pulling it hours after he announced his research plan in the financial hub. He, Kui, shocked the world in 2018 when he announced that he had altered the embryos of twin girls, with many in the scientific community criticizing his work as unethical. He was convicted by a mainland Chinese court in 2019 of practicing medicine without a license, and sentenced to three years in prison with a fine of 3 million yen. That turns into $445,000. Ten months after his release, he announced in Beijing on Tuesday that he had been granted a Hong Kong visa and was in contact with universities, research institutions, and companies in the financial hub. 
He said he would consider working in Hong Kong if there were any appropriate opportunities. And then he also plans to research gene therapy for rare hereditary diseases. My scientific research will comply with the ethics code and international consensus on scientific research, he said in a brief news conference. In Jerusalem, Israeli president urges consensus after judi judicial changes pass. Israel's president on Tuesday called on Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu con uh, coalition to seek dialogue and compromise after it pushed ahead with a controversial judicial overhaul and a turbulent parliamentary session overnight. Isaac Herzog said it was a difficult morning following the late-night parliamentary vote that saw two contentious pieces of legislation pass a preliminary hurdle. The legislation is part of sweeping changes proposed by the government that have prompted vocal criticism in Israel and abroad, drawn tens of thousands of protesters to the streets, and spooked investors and financial markers. On Tuesday, the dollar gained over 2% against the shekel, which is continuing a month-long slide that has seen the Israeli currency lose over 5% of its value against the dollar. Several Israeli companies have said that they are withdrawing money from the country, while Israeli newspapers have reported even larger withdrawals of cash as investors have grown jittery about the business climate. Critics say that the judicial overhaul underway will concentrate power in the hands of the ruling coalition in Israel's parliament, the Kent, the Kenset and erode the democratic system of checks and balances. Netanyahu and his allies insist that the changes will better curb an overly powerful Supreme Court. All right, let's see. What else do we have here? Um, the last little piece of news here. Biden, U.S. allies will not waver in Ukraine. While U.S. president was in Poland, Russia announced it would suspend participation in the last nuclear arms control treaty. Uh, in Warsaw, Poland, President Joe Biden on Tuesday warned of a hard and better days ahead as Russia's invasion of Ukraine nears the one-year mark, but vowed that no matter what, the United States and allies will not waver to supporting the Ukrainians' people. A day after his surprise visit to Kiev, Biden used a strongly worded address in neighboring Poland to praise allies in Europe for stepping up over the past year and to send a clear message to Russian Vladimir Putin that NATO will not be divided and we will not tire. And that just about does it here for the reading of the Telegraph Herald for February 22nd on a Wednesday. And this is Peter Welch, your narrator. And I want to thank you for listening to us today here on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Information Services Network for the Blind. Take care and be careful with that weather coming. Bye-bye now. Bye.